People keep treasures in strange places. Where does your family keep the family jewels or the valuables? Think about generational places that they kept these things. Maybe a coffee can hidden in a way. Maybe they were more organized and they got a safety deposit box at the local bank. When I moved to San Francisco, actually 15 years ago now, I tried to find a safety deposit box in the local bank and just in the Sunset District and they were all gone already. Like I just couldn't even find one. I had to go all the way to the Mission District to find a safety deposit box. Jeanette reminded me we still have that box. So, Where did your family keep the family jewels? Under the mattress? People keep valuables, treasures in strange places. Some recent college grads experienced this phenomenon. They were living in New Paltz, New York, and they went to the Salvation Army to buy furniture on a recent graduate budget, which is usually not very much. To fill their apartment, they, they looked at the Salvation Army and they found a couch. It could seat comfortably two, maybe three if you squished a little bit. And, and they were trying to find a deal and they kind of negotiated it down to $20 for this couch. I had a very similar experience, actually. I was in seminary and my friend and I were using Craigslist to find furniture for our place. And we ended up finding someone in, um, oh, what's that neighbor, Skokie, uh, which is a, a Jewish neighborhood and, in Chicago area. And we went to this person's house. I remember distinctly because it was a very Orthodox Jewish house, but they had this couch that they were trying to get rid of. And we went to it and we looked at it and it kind of didn't look that good, but we smelled it and it smelled kind of okay. And we're like, well, how much do you want for it? He's like, just give me $10. So we bought a couch for $10. We covered it with a million things to make sure, you know, this was kind of tolerable. Remember that couch. But these students brought home the couch. They sat on it and they, they sat on it and they, they realized it wasn't quite as comfortable as they thought. It was lumpy. And so they tried to beat out the lumps, tried to smooth out the couch cushions were beating it, trying to, to kind of push on it. It didn't help. And then they realized something was wrong. And so they unzipped the, the couch cushions. And to their surprise, hundreds of $100 bills started falling out. An inch here, a couple inches of $100 bills here. By the time they stopped counting, and didn't actually finish counting. By the time they stopped counting, they had reached $40,000 from this $20,000, $20 couch, $40,000. And they didn't even count it all from a $20 couch. They faced a moral dilemma. And so they tried to find the owner. They're nice recent grads. I don't know what you would have done if you found $40,000 out of a $20 couch, finders, keepers, right? But they discovered it belonged to an elderly woman, a widowed woman. And her family, as they were trying to take care of her at her older age, uh, didn't want her sleeping on this couch anymore. And they looked at the couch and they thought it was trash and they were going to throw it away, but they decided to donate it. And they only found out because these college students brought to their attention that their mother and deceased father were keeping their life's savings, their treasure, in what they thought was trash. People keep treasure in strange places, don't they? And that's the parallel that Paul uses to describe you and me that we are jars of clay, mud, containers, and yet we contain the greatest treasure 
the world has ever known. I want to look at this metaphor that Paul uses in this text, a very important one for the Christian life and unpack it for us. First, let's look at the meaning. Look at verse 7 again. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God put the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, cracked containers, muddy mugs. It's an imagery that would have been very familiar to the readers. They didn't have silverware, Tupperware like us today. They had pottery. And often they would take their valuables, place it in pottery. Sometimes they would bury it in their yards because pottery could be easily accessed. They'd be broken very easily. And so if they hid it and buried it, they could access it very easily, crack it open. Paul's probably seeing this because it's very commonplace. And he sees a broken jar and the Holy Spirit begins to speak to him. And the Holy Spirit through this broken jar of clay says to Paul, that's you. That's an illustration of your life. Because what's good about you, Paul, is not you. It's what's in you. What's valuable, what's most valuable about you is actually not you, but what God has placed inside of you. God has taken his most precious possession and put it inside you. God has taken treasure and put it in something that doesn't seem that amazing. The treasure actually is described by Paul in verse 6, which you looked at last week. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The glory of the gospel. The glory of Jesus in us. Fragile, feeble, ordinary, not that impressive containers. The metaphor of a jar refers to our earthly bodies. We're feeble. We're easily broken. The 40s is really starting to show me that. Time really goes fast. The longer you live, the, re- the more fast it seems to move. Time really has a way of imposing gravity on you, weighing you down. And as time flies, we'll all experience this. Parts of your body that were defined and strong lose their definition and become mushy. Muscles that were one time strong and become weak and flabby. It doesn't take too long in life to realize that we're all dirt, mud. The human body, if you think about it organically, it's 60 around, this is our average, it's 62% water, 6% minerals, 16% protein, 16% fat, give or take in our bodies, right? 1% carbohydrates. That's everyone's human body. It doesn't matter how much your net worth is, your compositional organic value isn't going to be much more than mud and water. LeBron James makes a lot of money, but his body is around 62% water, 6% minerals, probably way less fat and more protein, but you get the point. Elon Musk is very wealthy. I don't know how much more or less after buying Twitter, but undeniably wealthy still. But his body is also around 60% water, 6% minerals, give or take a certain percentage of fat and protein, probably more fat than LeBron. If you were to reduce humans in our organic makeup down, 
we'd all be just a couple of bottles of water, some nails, some salt, what you could buy for $20 at Safeway. That's us. When it comes to our humanity, it doesn't matter what your net worth, your accomplishments are. We, in our organic composition, don't measure up to be very much. Yet, God put the greatest treasure in us. He took nails for us. He endured the shame of his own creation for us. He put all of that glory inside you who are in Christ. And that's the glorious tension of having infinite treasure placed in finite people, easily broken and fragile. One of the things it ought to do is humble us, that we have limitations. No matter where we find ourselves in our life, we will be limited. We will be easily broken. It doesn't take much to take down our organic composition. But we have an infinite treasure and hope. We have this glorious gospel in us, eternity assured. It ought to empower us for ministry and hope. It ought to compel us because even though we have a mission that is impossible on our own, we have this infinite treasure in us. We are limited, but we have the unlimited one indwelling us. I want to note something about the timing. He says we have there's something in theological circles, they call it um, kind of the timing that they use this phrase called already, but not yet. Um, I'm going to give you some theological terms here. Like there's a eschatological tension. Eschatology means end things. Usually you think about it in the book of Revelation, but it just means the end, end time things. And we live with this timing tension, this end time eternal tension with the eternity and the present. See, we have promises of God that are already in part, but not fully in part. They're already not yet. Actually, this is where Christians often disagree. I think sometimes people have an over-realized eschatology. They have an over-belief in the promises of the future and they apply them to now. See, they take the promises that are true, but they inappropriately, the wrong timing, apply them to the present. They start claiming things now that aren't intended for now. They're intended for the future. I actually don't think that's our problem at Sunset Church. I think our problem is we have an underrealized eschatology. We actually don't fully believe what God promises. We actually don't take hold of the eternal, infinite treasure that he's placed inside of us, fully available for us now. We don't take hold of it. We, we know God is able, but then sometimes we don't think it's for us. And so we don't pray. We don't ask. We know God is doing great things for other people, but we don't believe it actually can be for me. I like what Peter says in his epistle. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's the treasure we have. In some ways, it's kept in heaven for us. I like that idea. It's reserved. It's kept. It's secured. I like reservations, actually. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but I, I like going to a restaurant knowing that I'm going to have a seat because I don't like waiting. I remember waiting like over two hours for a ramen place in Japantown once, and I was so angry by the time I said I couldn't enjoy the food because all I tasted was my anger. 
I don't like that. That's why I hate Southwest. I don't like not having a seat. It drives me insane. I don't care how cheap it is. I don't like not having a seat. It's insanity. So I like, I'm about to take, one of the trips I'm taking is to take my younger daughter, Sayla, to Disneyland. I did a trip with Malia, just the two of us. So I want to kind of replicate that before Sayla gets too old. Also taking them younger, you know, I feel like they do less. So it's somewhat cheaper. So they can't complain when I don't want to take them when they're teenagers. So this is my strategy. Um, but I want to take her to Disneyland. And then, you know, of course, I, they keep changing it. So I don't even know what it's called anymore. I just found out it's called Genie now or something. So I, I want to get something that gets me faster. If any little bit, I want to get faster. I want a reservation there. And I like how movie theaters these days are moving towards this, you know, mode of getting tickets where you can reserve a seat. You can look at the entire theater and know where you're going to sit. Because the worst thing ever is to arrive to a movie theater and have to sit in those front seats, right? You ever experienced that? You're just like this and you need like to see a chiropractor afterwards. When you get to heaven, there is an ultimate treasure reserved for you with your name on it, with your seat reserved. And we can't quite see how awesome that is at times because we have too enamored by shiny toys here. We are too caught up in fleeting pleasures in the present. But we will have in Christ an unfading, incorruptible treasure. And it's reserved for us that one day everyone in Christ will obtain. And Paul says, Yes, that is a future treasure. But we also have it and access to it now. I really wish I could communicate to my own soul and to you how awesome this is. There are some things that are for us in heaven that we don't have to wait for. That we get access to now that we have a God who richly gives you these things, these treasures. You get love, joy, peace, patience. You get all of that access to it in Christ now. Yes, we wait a life that is unknown, that is amazing beyond comparison, that no word can describe, but you get access to that treasure also now because God has put it in you. Friends, don't let Satan... Don't let the enemy take away the light of Christ that is in you. Don't let him snuff it out. Don't let him blind you to seeing it. Don't let him rob you of the joy. Don't let bad theology take you away from the light of Christ that is available to you in the present. And you know how we have this? And this is something amazing that's described throughout the scriptures, this analogy of a down payment. We have the Holy Spirit given to us as a down payment. It's like a preview of coming attractions. The more you are in Christ, the more you're growing in Christ, you'll see it. You see this glory exposed in your heart a little bit more. In fact, this is probably why most of us became Christians as you were exploring anyways, because you saw someone who believed this gospel and you saw it radiating in their life. They started seeing the glory come out in their transformation. We have this down payment we see glimpses of it that point to a future, profound, full joy. I have experience that kind of parallels this idea of a down payment. I've been married 15 years now. I was thinking about that. Uh, I don't know if that feels long or is short. It's all relative, but 
I remember uh, distinctly the moments where we were thinking about being married. We went to, you know, that jeweler. I don't remember the name of the jeweler we went to, but it was like uh, near Wacker Street, I think, in Chicago. We were in Chicago at the time. And I remember buying a ring for the love of my life. And this is before Beyonce sang a song, right? If you liked it, you should have put a ring on it. This is before that. But I liked it, and I wanted to put a ring on it. I remember going to the jeweler, and she was teaching me, or he was teaching me, I don't remember who, but they were teaching me the C's, right? You have, I don't even, one I remember was, and then you under, I understood was carrot, but there's clarity, cut, color. And she asked me, and she showed me all these rings, like, which one do you like? And I asked her, which one can I afford? Because the very important one is cost, right? That's a very important C, cost. <laughs> We ended up getting one, which she still has, that same one. Put that amazing, beautiful sapphire and put it in platinum. And I remember planning the proposal. This is something with a, a trend in our early part of the relationship, which is kind of still true today. Jeanette is a very like intelligent, driven person to the point where her like her spaces that she keeps in her life, if you go to see her office, it's like a hurricane went through there. I, her her life is chaotic. So actually, I remember we were dating once, and one of the things I did to surprise her went to her dorm room, and I cleaned it because I was like, I can't. First of all, because to help her out, but also I can't stand it. It was just chaotic. I did the same thing with her place in Chicago. I reorganized it. I cleaned it. I set it up, and then we went on our. She, she'll tell you she didn't like the proposal um, because it wasn't exactly what she wanted. But I still feel kind of proud about my proposal plan. Went to one of her favorite places. Uh, you know, we went to the museum campus of Chicago. It goes out uh, into, you know, Lake Michigan, and you can overlook the city from a distance. And, you know, I waxed elegant there as much as I could, telling her how much I liked her. And she obviously could tell what was going on. And back before, like, smartphones. And so I was, like, trying to, like, text with the, like, QWERTY keyboard, like, my friend who was going to, like, I had set up the room so, like, there were candles, but I wasn't going to leave them lit all day, all night, because we went out to dinner, we went to museum campus. She were, her roommate was actually kind of, like, going to light the candles on the way back, so I was trying to, like, query keyboard this in the background. And I, I don't know why I texted, but finally, it did communicate something to her, and went back, and I proposed to her, and I washed her feet, I remember that, and I remember her very distinctly saying, after I said, would you marry me? She's like, can I think about it? I think she was... She gets, and she says the weirdest things in moments of intimacy. She started laughing at me when I was singing her down the aisle on our wedding day. So she does that to kind of cover up, I think, some of her feelings. But I remember after the proposal, this was uh, May or June, I forgot exactly when I proposed, um, in Chicago. But I had already accepted the fact that I was going to be a youth pastor here. So we spent the entire engagement uh, long distance. And I remember thinking and telling her in, in some words, not exactly like this, but, you know, when we were spending our engagement apart, if she missed me, if she wondered what was going on, you know, if she ever was worried about our relationship, all she would need to look do is look down at that engagement ring and remember, I'm I'm in. I'm in it. I'm coming back. We're going to be together. Look at that ring and say, he's come back for me. He values me. He's all in. When you look at humanity, we're just jars of clay. And things are often 
kind of broken and feeble. But if you ever wonder how God feels about you, if you ever wonder if he loves you, if you ever wonder if he's coming back for you, look to the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, which is in you. We have this treasure in us. Pray the Spirit would help us to see that more and more because that's where life comes from. Now, why do we have this? Why did God put this amazing, glorious treasure in us? Feeble dirt, jugs of mud. Verse 7, to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Surpassing power. Paul is using hyperbole. Usually when we think of hyperbole, we think it's an exaggeration. But Paul is saying, no, this treasure is supremely, profoundly greater, so much more wonderful than he could ever describe. And he's saying, this was put in us. Because it's not about us, ultimately. It's about God. God chooses what is weak and foolish in the world. He chooses jars of clay. He chose Paul, who's fragile and beat up. Look what Paul says about himself. In verses 8 to 9, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. He's perplexed, but not driven to despair. He's persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So he's afflicted, he's perplexed, he's persecuted, he's struck down. In all of that, he wasn't destroyed. And actually, that was one of the problems that the Corinthians had with Paul. Like, he doesn't really speak as eloquently as the other orators famous in Corinth. I mean, he's constantly living this really depressed life. He's being attacked. I mean, I read that last week, right? He's been flogged a bunch of times. He's been shipwrecked. He's been homeless. He's not the representation of someone. If you say this is so glorious, you say this message is so amazing, what's wrong with your life? They couldn't reconcile God's glory with the kind of death that was around Paul in his life. Think about how we choose to work with different kinds of people in our life. If you were to plan your finances and you went to a, a financial planner, you, what do you expect your financial planner to be like? You expect him or her to be dressed nicely, to be well-groomed, to, to seem as if they have a decent office. And when you go into the office, it's not like Jeanette's, it's actually organized. If that person is disheveled, wearing a faded t-shirt, doesn't look like they have any money at all, you probably will say, no, don't they, you're not the one for me. If you're trying to, you know, get fit and you are looking for a physical trainer and this physical trainer is, you know, more overweight than you are and puffing and puffing, more out of shape than you are, you're probably not going to want to work with that physical trainer. The Corinthians saw Paul. He saw his life and the difficulty and the suffering and the persecution and the affliction and the perplexion that he has. And they're like, how can the glory of God be in you? Such a feeble person. And Paul says, you got it right. God chooses to put his greatest treasure in jars of clay because it shakes the treasure shine. No one could mistake the power of Paul's life and ministry to be his own because it shows us it's about God. One of the things we have to understand in our life as in following Christ is not to confuse us, the container, with the content, the gospel. Have you ever gone to barbecue, like legit barbecue places? We don't have any of that in San Francisco. 
uh, there's a number of places that have decent barbecue meat, but it's not legit barbecue. You know, one of the things, if you go to legit barbecue places, you'll find there's always a couple of things that always surprise me. And I understand why now reading this passage. If you go to a legit barbecue place, they always give you the meat is like heavy and it's greasy and it's like a lot. But you know how they serve it to you? They serve it to you on the most flimsy paper plate ever, right? They always, all legit barbecue places have like the worst paper plates. And they also give you the worst white bread, right? You notice that they have this like white bread that's like nothing and they give it to you in, a, in abundance and they put it on this, they put this like 20 pound plate of meat and on this flimsy paper plate. Why? Because no one cares about the plates at a barbecue place. No one cares about the bread. They're really not even eating it. What are they eating? The meat. <laughs> See, so often I think we confuse the container with the content. We want Christians, we want leaders that are strong, professional, successful, that have degrees, have money, that are relevant, that are hip, that are impressive. That's not how Paul presented himself. He saw himself as a jar of clay, beat up, perplexed, afflicted, persecuted, and struck down, ordinary, because it shows the treasure, not the person. And when they see Paul not destroyed, not completely falling apart, even though he's going all through that, they will see and ask the question, what is at work in him? Don't confuse the content with the container. See, the, this is the paradox of being a follower of Christ. We sometimes confuse the glory of our work, our achievement, our net worth, and we think it's about us, but we are all jars of clay to display, if we're followers of Christ, this amazing gospel, this treasure. It's amazing what God would put, this great treasure in us. As followers of Jesus, we cannot confuse the container with the content. Because what's good about me, what's good about you, is ultimately not us. It is God. Containers are weak. The jar is corruptible, but the treasure is strong, valuable, unbreakable. Too many Christians look to messengers, leaders, pastors, scholars, when we should be exalting the message. We want Christians who have all these things, but God works through weak, foolish people. I like what one scholar says, God gets more glory when he uses nobody than nobility. Paul saw himself that way as a dried mud vessel, easily broken, not worth much, but with infinite value because of what's in him. See, we're not meant to be the hero of our own story. I think too many of us kind of confuse the Christian life with Rocky, right? You have this guy who's kind of coming up and you have this hard work and determination and by Rocky IV, you single-handedly end a cold war. That's, you know, that's that, right? That, that, that's not what the Christian life is. It's not, and there's a good to that. There is a good to overcoming adversity. There's a good to working hard. There is a particular good to becoming the best version of you. But ultimately, the plan of God is to show his treasure in his weakness, in our weakness, to show his grace. See, if we have no weaknesses, if we have no brokenness, what people will see is us and not the treasure. Paul says, 
This is how it happens in his life. Verses 10 to 12. These are hard verses. Always carrying around in the bodies. This is the jar of clay metaphor. In the jar of clay, our bodies. The death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us. But life in you. Now this is this is the this is the thing that I think stops us from experiencing the fullness of God. This is what actually stops the church from being the church that actually shines as a city on a hill and salt and light to the world. Because we want to be nice porcelain. We want to be displayable china. We don't want to be that flimsy paper plate with barbecue on it. We want to be strong. We want to be well put together. But it's actually in our brokenness. It's actually when we experience dying to ourselves, denying ourselves, and taking up our cross daily that the people around us can see Jesus. Have you ever been around someone who's truly experienced suffering? Someone who's truly experienced loss? That's one of the joys. This is why I love being on the board of Overseas Mission Fellowship. I get, a, I get the privilege, the honor of serving in the kingdom. But also one of the things I get to regularly hear is testimonies of people who literally are suffering. Because there, there's something that when I hear them, and there's some simplicity in their faith, there's this vitality when someone has gone through suffering and they're still faithful. They are also perplexed, but not completely destroyed. They're also afflicted and persecuted, but not, and they're still pressing on. There's a sweetness to the fellowship they have. There's, there's, a, there's a kind of life in them because they are near death. See, it's actually our willingness to function like jars of clay to where people will see the gospel in us. The problem is, and I'm saying this is my problem, this is probably our problem, we want to show Jesus in ways that cost us nothing. Do you know what, why people don't see Jesus in us? Because we want to be pristine. We don't want to break. We don't want to die to ourselves. We don't want to be broken. We want to show Jesus to others in ways that cost us nothing. We want to be used by God without cost. But there's always cost. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself. You know, when death is at work in us, that's when life can be poured out into other people. If there is no dying to ourselves, there is no life in others. There's no light shining out. This happens. You know how we die to ourselves? When we risk embarrassment and we die to our reputations, we die to our you know, perceptions of ourselves, we die to our uh, desires for comfort and we share the gospel. It means dying to ourselves and freeing our children, blessing them as they're called to ministry and mission. Or maybe called to career paths or ways of life that are different than ours. I was talking to uh, a couple of pastors from CIBC San Francisco this past week, such sweet fellowship this past week. And we we're talking as pastors do about next generation and challenges, especially in the Asian American community. And one of the things we, this has been the case since I was a kid, but it's not any different now. We were noting, you know, when one of the pastors there is a little younger than me, he went to seminary not long ago, and he was noting how there were almost no Chinese Americans. There were Asians there, mostly Koreans, which is, we praise God for that, but there was like almost none. And we're like, there's no, no Chinese Americans in, in past, who want to be pastors. 
And, and I would say one of the main reasons for this, and we were talking about this, is because in Chinese immigration stories, they have baptized the American dream into the core of their being. And so when next generation children, if some of them want to be in ministry or maybe want to do a career, like think about David Lorraine. They want to be work, he's working in coffee, but he wants to move his life across the world. See, what happens in the next generation is that we have a generation of parents who say, no, we can't risk it. We didn't move across the country for this. And even if they're followers of Jesus, we just crush it. And so there's no cost. We want this. We want to pray for the gospel to get out for the world, but we don't want it to cost me and my family and my children. It means dying to our desires. It means parting. I mean, if we want death to be at work in us so other people see the light, it means parting with some of our time, probably the most valuable treasure so I can spend time with our young people in our church, so I can spend time with people who don't know Jesus yet. It means parting with some of my resources so I can support laborers, letting death break us as jars so that life can be found in others. You know, one of the things that's amazing to me, there's a couple in our church, one of our earliest pastors, actually, Pastor Gary, he's passed a number of years ago now, and recently for his wife, who was in our church, uh, passed as well. And you know what? I, I love seeing Flora at church. She faced illness near the end of her life, but she always came to church. She was a, she, you could say this woman was a church woman. She loved Jesus. In, in the illness and near the end of her life, she showed up when she could. She loved, she always, when she was able to verbalize to, to me, would express words of prayer to me and her, her husband would write notes to me expressing this. And you know what? I saw Jesus near the end of her life because she was here and she was facing illness. And in that brokenness, in that perseverance, I saw Jesus. Because Christ was making her strong. It's in our brokenness. It's in our perseverance in Christ in the midst of all that, where life begins to be spilled out in other people. That's one of the things that we need to discover as a church. Talking a lot about the need for vulnerability and and, and the need to be able to share failures. The need to share our brokenness because you know what, what happens when we begin to do that? People don't see you. They see Christ. And if we consistently as a church only present a life that's well put together, well mannered, everything's good, everything's going well, everything's successful, there's no brokenness, no failure, no dependency in our life, and we never present that to other people because we know that's not true then there's never going to be life poured out to others. There's a story of a little boy on here who went to work in the garden with her, his grandma. And when he was young, uh, he began to notice that his grandma always gave him uh, a water bucket with holes in it. And so he would walk through the garden and this holy bucket would kind of drip as he walked through. And as he got older, he got kind of frustrated. He's like, why do you always give me the holy broken bucket. Like, there's no point to me even helping you because by the time I get to the end of the, the garden, the water's all gone already. But what's the point? Like, I don't, I don't want to even help you anymore. You just give me this broken bucket. And then she took him outside in his frustration and she had him 
look along the path that he walks. And she asked him, what do you see? Tomatoes. You see, mustard greens. You see, I knew this is the grandma talking to her grandson, that there were cracks in the bucket. And I filled it all the way up anyways. And I made you carry it through the garden because water, as it spills out, will water the seeds along that path. The reason we have all these tomatoes is because that bucket that you carried was broken. It's through our brokenness, our limitations, that God displays his power. He knows you are a cracked container, that you are a broken jar, yet he fills you up with the glory of the face of Jesus. So as you are broken and it spills out over your life and you go through life, people who never knew Jesus would get a chance to know him because they will see that you have a great treasure in you as a jar of clay. Let's pray. Would you take a moment to ask the Spirit to work in your heart? Maybe there's things you need to ask for, maybe things you need to submit, maybe things you need to confess. Let the Spirit minister to you. Holy Spirit, minister. Holy Spirit, speak. Father, I confess one of the things I need to experience more in, maybe on my sabbatical, is this recalibrating of what a minister of the gospel is. It doesn't come through well-presented, well-organized, successful to the world's eyes perspectives, but Father comes from brokenness a willingness to die, a willingness to be broken, a willingness to see the cost. I pray that that would be more and more true of me. That'd be more and more true of our pastors and leaders in our church, our elders, our ministry leaders, those who lead in all spaces, children, ministry, helping organize refreshments. Father, may we not be people who want to present a, a false self of having it all together. May we not want to present Jesus without cost to us. That's where renewal happens, Lord. That's where life happens. That's where gospel truth actually gets out into this world so they can see you, not us. The Father, break us to those places we need to be broken. Give us eyes to see and courage to speak and hearts that are softened and hands that are active to respond to this word, to respond to your spirit, Lord. I pray this would revive the hearts of your children here. It would revive our church. It would help us to truly be on mission, not just say that we want to make much of Jesus and get the gospel out there with the Father. It would really be here. It doesn't come through our 
human ability to plan and execute and organize, Father, comes because your power is displayed in our weakness. Father, we long, I long for that. May you do that work and me and my friends and my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.